1: And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, Podcast Nation.
0: Welcome to Dose of Leadership Podcast. I am Richard Ryerson. Before we start with the interview, I just want to remind everybody, go to com and, and join our leadership community. Sign up. I'll give you a free copy of my leadership guide. Also, spread the word about this podcast. We're going to try to build this community, especially in these early stages. Get the word out there. Pass it, pass it on to Facebook, on to Twitter, Twitter. LinkedIn, let everybody know about the quality shows that we're bringing here at Dose of Leadership Podcast. So again, thanks for your support, and uh, here's the interview. Well, my guest today, I'm really excited, It's uh, Gene Kranz. He's a retired NASA flight director who served during the Gemini and Apollo programs. He's probably best known for his role as directing the successful mission control team efforts of bringing the, uh, the crew of Apollo 13 But man, this guy has been a witness and participant to some of the most historical and significant events in American history. From the beginning of the Mercury and Gemini space program with uh, John Glenn's flight, Alan Shepard's flight. He was there when uh, Ed White walked uh, the first uh, American to walk in space. And of course, he was sitting at the controls of Mission Control when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon in July 1969. Gene, it's a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. How are you today?
2: Well, Richard, it's a uh, pleasure to be with you. I like the subject of leadership, and I believe this is an essential element as we move forward as a nation, as we move forward in communities, in each one of our groups within uh,
0: a society. Here, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, and I think, when I look back at, uh, of course, I've been a big fan of the space program since I was a kid, and you know, learning about the whole mission control concept and and watching how you deal with uh, the stress of the situation and, and reading your book, Failure's Not an Option, you get a lot of insight to how every day, every mission was so stressful. And I think what really struck to me in uh, the whole idea of a decentralized decision-making concept, it, it wouldn't survive unless you had decentralized decision-making. Would you agree with that?
2: Yes, sir. That's where you're right on track.
0: You know, the whole mission control concept that and let's talk a little bit about Chris Kraft. I don't, you know, a lot of people don't know about him, but he really was your, as you put in your book, the teacher. He was the kind of the visionary of the whole mission control concept, was he not?
2: Yes, uh, he was. Uh, when I first met uh, Chris, I uh, had uh, flown as a fighter pilot. I had worked in aircraft flight test. I had seen many uh, uh, young leaders uh, grow into their roles. So Chris was uh, essentially a new guy in the block to me because. Uh, he had a, a challenge to essentially uh, develop capabilities that had never existed before.
0: Ma- making it up as you go, I right?
2: Saw him, I saw him struggling to, uh, to build his uh, team in Mission Control. And uh, it was, I was fortunate in those days to be one of the guys that uh, came in. he had a relatively small uh, online team of about uh, four people. Uh, that were as uh, full-time workers, full-time professionals. So I had the opportunity to uh, be his uh, left-hand for some of the great events. And in particular, I became sort of a scribe in mission control, uh, basically providing the uh, dialogue and communications not only within the team but for all the tracking stations around the world, which put me in a great position. To understand the nature of leadership and mission control, but more importantly, to prepare myself for a leadership role later on.
0: So, how was he as a leader? Was he uh, tough but fair? Was he? Um... Tell me a little bit more about him.
2: Chris was—he uh, had the ability to step up to whatever challenges existed at that time. Uh, you know, many people will stand uh, stand by; they'll see an issue arise now, want to study it, uh, but basically Chris said, hey, I recognize that as a problem. It is our job to solve it, so let's get on with it. And this was uh, particularly uh, appropriate as we were working through a project in Mercury because Mercury, the role of the flight director, the role of, that Chris would eventually define, uh, was somewhat ambiguous. I remember during uh, John Glenn's mission that we had uh, literally a team of people in there trying to achieve consensus over what are we going to do. And in the meantime, they, uh, we thought the heat shield might have come loose. The uh, the clock was marching on, the spacecraft going around, and finally arrived out in California. We told John to uh, retain the retro rocket pack to uh, uh, be able to uh, hold on the clamps and the pack went around the heat shield, and John Glenn asked the question, well, what is the reason for this? And the communicator at the California site said, well, uh, they'll tell you about uh, Texas. So as a result of this uh, uh, unfocused uh, work that was being done in Mission Control to figure out what is the best way to get John Glenn home, Chris determined that there had to be a single leader yeah, uh, for the mission control team, and he wrote probably the simplest job description that exists in America today. It says the flight director may take any actions necessary for crew safety and mission success. Period. That's yeah. it.
0: That's nice. You know that it, I think you wrote that, that's what you said. You just hit on it there. That was kind of the critical point, John Glenn's mission where. You know, look, we got too many cooks in the kitchen. Somebody has to be accountable for the success of this mission. And I think, you know, I take that away as, you know, flying multi-crew aircraft. You know, you got a lot of functional leaders. You know, when I flew KC-135s and KC-130s, a lot of functional leaders, but there's only one person that's accountable for the success of the mission. Even though that navigator who, who I don't know how when he does a cell shot and shoots at the sun, and I don't know how to do that. But if he fails in that leadership responsibility and we miss Hawaii, I'm accountable. I'm at fault as the aircraft commander if we don't make it to Hawaii. Would you agree with that?
2: Yes, you're right on track.
0: So as you developed and you, it just seemed like you were at the right place at the right time, you were just getting groomed and developed for all of these historical events – You flew F-86s in Korea. A lot of people may not know about that. Would you think that your experience as a fighter pilot, as a military officer, did that help groom you and prepare you for all the challenges that you were faced with at NASA?
2: Yes, I believe that was an absolutely superb background because uh, as I was uh, coming through, growing up through high school and into college, I had the uh, the good fortune to uh, have uh, very strong mentors and leaders that gave me many of the uh, traits that I would need uh, from a standpoint of uh, assuming a leadership role. Basically, the key one was integrity. Basically, a leader must stand for something. He must know what he stands for, and his people must know what he stands for. And Mm -hmm. uh, when you finally over in Korea, I made uh, element lead and then flight lead in there. And basically, I was responsible for the three guys hanging off my wing as a fighter pilot And I was responsible not only uh, for my role, but the total uh, flight role in accomplishing the missions that we were defined. I I learned this in a much greater extent as a forward air controller with the 7th Infantry, because there I not only was uh, responsible for the mission that I had been given as an air controller, but also for the uh, safety of all of the people attempting to accomplish the mission. One of the one of the neat things that I think few people recognize about Apollo 13, three of the four flight directors working Apollo thirteen were uh, pilots or aircrew. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize that. I mean, and maybe if if all people know about you was Apollo thirteen, you're right. That I'm a huge believer that the whole idea of well military training too, but being a pilot in general, especially. And, you know the, the forward air controller is a great example, too, but it certainly sets the stage for successful leadership in life and business in general. I know it, it did for me, and I can, just, I can just see, especially reading your book and studying what you've done, is how all of those things was laying a groundwork and preparing you for all those challenges ahead, which leads me to—I'm to, uh, I'm familiar with this story, but talk about that day on the lunar landing— and that whole idea. You were there when they touched down in the lunar lunar module. Tell me a little about what was going through your head, what was what were you thinking, what were you feeling during that time, during that monumental time they touched down on the moon.
2: The uh, day we landed on the moon was uh, probably the, uh, the most challenging time I think we've ever had in mission control. A lot of people try to say that was Apollo 13, but Apollo 11 was... Uh, uh, basically a split series of split-second decisions that had to be made by a team of very young people. My average team was uh, 26 years old. That's amazing. And uh, generally uh, two to four years out of college, and uh, they had been given the responsibility to uh, take an American to the surface of the moon. And it was literally a battle to get down there from the time that we acquired the spacecraft. We had a navigation problem and. uh one of my controllers came up and said, uh, Flight, I don't know what's, uh, what's happened here. Uh, but basically, we've got a, a radio velocity error in there, and we're halfway to our abort limit. And the word abort is not casually used in mission control. I can imagine. About, about the time that uh, he stated that, then we were having a communications problem. We had to relay instructions uh, through Mike Collins up in the command module. And this made it very difficult because it essentially doubled uh, our communications time delay. It we went from about three seconds to about five to six seconds for everything that we were trying to do. Then we had a minor uh, uh, problem associated with the electrical system. We uh, were trying to resolve this uh, this navigation problem, and I had a series of go goes I had to make. Was it safe to uh, start the descent to the surface of the moon? Uh, we made the GONO go to start the power descent, and shortly after we got into the, uh, the the descent phase, we again were having the communications problems. Fortunately, the, uh, the uh, trajectory problem that we had was not increasing, but we knew we were going to be landing long, so we started worrying about the uh, boulders and the craters at the uh, tip of the landing footprint. Uh, then we had a series of computer program alarms, and if these... Uh, basically uh, sustained themselves. The computer would go to uh, what we call a, a Pudu co- uh, call, which was a new program zero-zero, which the computer would halt and the mission would be over. So we had to work around those. Then as we got down closer, uh, within a, uh, about two minutes from a standpoint of the surface, uh, we got a, a low-level indication and we know it was going to be dicey. Whether we were going to get down to the surface of the moon at uh, 60 seconds, mission control went silent except for calling out seconds of fuel remaining to the crew. Wow! And we called 60, and then 45, and then 30, and about the time we were uh, about ready to call out 15, uh, we recognized the. Uh, the crew was shutting down the engine. So we landed in the moon that day with about 17 seconds of fuel remaining.
0: That's amazing. And we were in the
2: process of uh, coming down to a very difficult and extremely risky land abort decision. So it was about as close that day, and it was a bunch of young kids and a lot of heroes.
0: That's amazing. You know, you were th- 37 at the time? You were the oldest guy in the room? <laughs>
2: yeah. I was the oldest guy in the flight control team. There were a couple older ones sitting behind me, but... Uh, <laughs> Basically, I had, the, I had the
0: helm that day. Wow. And again, it highlights there the decentralized decision-making. You couldn't have done it. I mean, you, if everything flowed up to you and you had to sit there and go, well, I need more information, it, it wouldn't have happened. You had to rely on all those 25, 26, 27-year-olds to, to kind of tell you what's going on.
2: Well, that goes into a second. We started talking about uh, Chris Kraft. And I think uh, Chris's ability was to select the right people for the job and then give them the absolute trust necessary to accomplish that job. And trust within the team, the trust between myself as flight director and my controllers, between myself and the crew that I was going to take down to the surface of the moon, trust uh, between myself and the program managers was absolutely essential, not only that day, but every day we operated in mission control.
0: How long had you guys been working together at, at that point? Had, had, had you been, like, wh- what was the, the most um, young relationship or the most immature relationship in that room?
2: Well, they're, they're, uh, you uh, take a look at the uh, uh, many of the controllers in there. They had been with us for uh, six to eight years from the very beginning yeah. of the program. But about uh, four years into the program, we were stepping into uh, next-generation uh, technology. And uh, we were literally technical dinosaurs in mission control, so we brought in the young people out of college. And it was uh, the uh, knowledge and experience of the older folks combined with the, uh, the new skills that the young people brought to us. And it was uh, about midpoint in Gemini that the average age plummeted from the uh, early to the mid-30s down into the uh, low-20s. So it was a question of uh, regrowing and and giving these people the skills. They were were good technically. What we had to do is build them as a team, and in particular, uh, make them aware that uh, they would be required to make irrevocable, time-critical decisions. In mission control... We have a uh, series of what we call the foundations, and one of the foundations states, to always be aware that suddenly and unexpectedly we may find ourselves in a role where our performance has ultimate consequences. And the key word there is ultimate. Every person must be capable and confident and skilled to make time-critical, irrevocable decisions, and that is the real challenge of building your team.
0: Well, yeah. And I think a couple a of couple things there that from a leadership standpoint, bringing on the young guys with the old. So you as a leader with a little more salty and experience, and again, you were very young then too, you're barely 30 when you were starting there. And then, you know, having the ability to let the ego go, if you will, and kind of be willingness to, to adapt and to change and to learn, and most importantly, teach them to take your job. And that's what really comes clear to me is that that's what you guys were doing you were teaching others to take your job which is what chris did for you and what you did for the others yeah
2: you said you said one of the key words in there letting the ego go because ego in virtually any job is your enemy yep uh, i came in from aircraft flight test a lot of people came in from aircraft flight test and we had learned to check our ego at the door every day when we came to work and i believe that was again one of the one of the challenges that many of the uh, many of the people just could not step up to meet. Right. And we were fortunate that as a team we had a uh, a training supervisor. We called him SimSoup. And Sim could really drive the spike through the hearts of those people who couldn't put that uh, ego aside and uh, work effectively with other members of the team.
0: Tell me a little bit about I was I heard another interview and I thought it was so poignant and so powerful um, what did you tell your team? It, go, two things. Talk to me a little bit about what happens right before the critical phase. I mean, you know, locking the doors and mission control. And, and what did you tell your team right before the the loon, You knew that you guys were going for the moon.
2: The uh, I was probably the uh, the most emotional of the uh, flight directors. Again, this was no different than uh, taking my uh, flight. Uh, that I had over in Korea before we, when we would finish our briefings, before we would set off on what missions we had. Sometimes it was escort aircraft, uh, reconnaissance aircraft in from Japan. Uh, sometimes it was to uh, work with foreign air controllers on the ground. I always said I gave them a pep talk. And it was absolutely essential that these people recognize uh, the role and responsibility and the challenges they're going to face. Generally, uh, in uh, mission control for landing day, about uh, 25 minutes uh, before we actually uh, started down from uh, uh, orbit around the moon to the surface, uh, this is the last opportunity we have for a restroom break, and it's also the last opportunity I have to sort of get my mind and get my uh, console in order uh, for the challenge that we're going to face as we go down to the moon. And as the controllers came back into the room, I had them go into a private communications loop that no one other than the people in the room could hear. And I advised them that uh, today we were going to do something that never had been done before. We were going to meet many challenges, but we were well trained. And as a team, I had a lot of confidence in them. And then I finished with some words that I didn't realize the significance until controllers came back to me uh, later on I said whatever happens here today I will stand behind every decision you will make we came into this room as a team and we will leave as a team and then I told my ground controller to lock the doors and when those doors were locked the controllers no one would leave or enter that room until we had even landed we had crashed or we had aborted. And whatever happened, we were fully accountable for And I believe this, uh, there was one young controller made a lot of decisions by the name of Steve Bales. And uh, he was the guy responsible for looking into the guts of the computer and saying, we're going those program alarms late." And years later, he came back and then he says, those were probably the most important words he ever heard. In his entire time in the space program, we came to this room as a team, and we will leave as a team.
0: Well, he knew you had you had his back, and if he didn't know that, he may have not have been as confident in making whatever decisions he had to make.
2: Well, it was uh, I had the confidence in him. What was really key was to give the confidence in himself. That's That's one of the. uh, uh, when I uh, talk to various groups, I talk about my uh, primary flight instructor when I was going through flight training, and I realized many years later that it was—it's pretty easy to teach a person to fly. But what is the challenge of his primary flight instructor is to give him the confidence that the day he crawls out of the back seat of the airplane and you're on your own, you have the confidence that you can accomplish. Uh, whatever the mission they define, and the first day, it's very simple. It's to get up and get down safely. And uh, just my opportunity to to observe my flight instructor, whose name was Jack Coleman, he was a duster pilot, <laughs> uh, and see the techniques he used to get me ready. Many years later, I appreciated uh, the work that he, had, that he had done with me without myself even knowing it.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny you bring that up, but the same thing happened to me. I, I talked. To, I was talking to somebody about confidence before, and, I, and it, it did strike me. We were talking. I said, you know, it was, it was those instructors. You know, you had the ones that were always nervous, and they never let their hands off their controls. It was the ones that were just sitting there so calm, and you talked to them afterwards. They were a little nervous. They just didn't show it. But, you know, they always had their hands ready, but you didn't know that they were ready. And they, they let you push it almost to the edge. You know, they almost let you quite stall. They almost let you land with the gear up. And those are the ones that helped you become more confident. So, yeah, that's very, I understand completely what you're saying.
2: Yeah, there's there's another gentleman which I also think is a key into, in leadership is what they call passion. My boss in the first Boston flight test was Harry Carroll. And in today's world, you'd call him a renaissance man. He was a bomber pilot, flew in all three theaters in World War II, got his college degree, became an inventor. He wrote poetry, acted <laughs> in a theater, uh, led the Grand Portage canoe trek along the Canadian border. <laughs> uh, oldest person ever to do outward bound mountain survival. And, and I said, Harry, why did you do all those things? And he says, think about what I would have missed if I hadn't. <laughs> he says, when I die, I want to be all used up. Oh, that's and awesome. I thought, my God, that guy communicated the passion he had for, yeah. for what he did to every person he ever worked with. And that is what turns people on. Yep. It is the passion of the leader
0: yep.
2: in accomplishing the mission.
0: <laughs> that's a great story. What a great individual. Yeah, you're right. You think back to some of those great, those great leaders that you come across. It's always those colorful, passionate ones. You're right. Well, I tell you who I want to learn a little bit more about and I don't know much about you you had six kids. I'm a father of four. What about Marta? She seems like a pretty good leader in her own right. How did she put up with all of that with six kids and you gosh, you had to be gone almost all the time.
2: Well what was uh, what was interesting? Uh, I met uh, Marta in a picnic uh, when I was in JIP uh, training down in uh, Del Rio. And uh, she was a young lady from uh, Eagle Pass, which is about 50 miles away. And uh, we had about six, seven dates. And then I moved to another base and promptly forgot about her. And then I had an uh, accident water skiing where I broke my wrist, and I was set back to class. And I thought about this young lady, and uh, I said, uh, you know, I want you to come up to my house in Toledo, Ohio. Uh, and uh, Christmas, and uh, let's uh, let's uh, let's get engaged. And doggone it, that young lady had never been out of uh, her community down there. Grabbed a bus, got to San Antonio, flew to uh, uh, Ohio. But unfortunately, had a big snowstorm. She got into Dayton, had to take a train to Toledo. Uh, then after that, got into and, and this gay lady just got to where my mother lived. She was a mother at the uh, house mother at the nursing home there. And when she showed up at the door, you know, I just said, you know, this lady's got a lot of guts. Well, this was true all the way through life. She's key in the development of the uh, the vests because uh, when we were flying, I was with the 355th at that time. Uh, She would always make me fancy scarves, and pretty soon the other pilots said, "Uh, where'd you get that scarf? And I said, my wife. So she started making these scarves for the other pilots, too. And it was her idea but uh, my team color was white, and she said, you know, you ought to have some kind of a symbol, some rallying point for your team, and I'm going to make you a white vest, and you're going to wear it. And doggone it, uh, that was the case. That became really a symbol that the team really appreciated, and when times got tough, we really hung together because we believed and we worked as a team.
0: (laughs) That's great. Sometimes those little things, you know, it's, it's always the little things, right?
2: The yeah, t- it was, uh, and uh, i give you some ideas for the fancy vest. The, uh, at one time, it came back after Gemini 9, which was a real basket case mission, but we held everything together and satisfied the objectives, and I came home, and I said, Mart, I want a vest to celebrate my, to, with my team. I want to wear it for the final shift. And she said, I don't have any material. I can't nothing to make out of it. And I went and got a few hours of rest, and on. if I got up the next morning, and I had a beautiful gold and silver brocade and white silk. She had, uh, when I came back from Korea, I brought a, uh, a robe for her, and she cut the bottom off the robe to make the vest.
0: Oh.
2: <laughs> and uh, that, believe it or not, has been at the George Bush Library. Uh, martha has got vests all over the place. She's got one in Space Center, Houston. She's got one up in the Smithsonian. So uh, that lady was a real trooper. And
0: Six kids. That's amazing.
2: Well, it was uh, being being military. We uh, sort of had, we traveled around a lot, and uh, five of the six were all born in different states. So <laughs> that's the way it goes.
0: You know, one thing we talk about here on the on the podcast, and you know, I think I'm real big about talking about embracing your failures and getting comfortable with your failures. Of course, you know, another thing I learned from flight training is you got to get comfortable with them. You got to get you know, you can throw the ego out the door, get comfortable with your failures. Apollo 1, you were there, I mean, I'm reading the book and you were at home getting ready to go to dinner and you got the knock on the door, you know, huge tragedy, huge punch in the gut. And what's amazing to me, you know, 29 months later after the setback at Apollo 1, um, there you were landing on the moon. Tell me a little bit about Apollo 1, whatever you're comfortable with, you know, with the loss of Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Chafee, how do you recover from such a huge setback?
2: Well, the fortunate there were good things and bad things about it. As I said, I was uh, I had had a, uh, a variety of experiences. I uh, I was fighter pilot and then. When I finished, I uh, went to work as a flight test engineer uh, out at uh, Holloman Air Force Base. And in the process of this, uh, you become very familiar with the risks and sometimes the fact that uh, you lose people. And. Uh, at the time of Apollo one the uh, the impact was devastating because we had a, a very young young team of controllers in there and uh, they were uh, they were present that day and listened to the crew's uh, screams as they died and uh after we finally uh, secured mission control we went over to a uh, our uh, place, we called it the Red Barn, Singing Wheel. Yeah, And we proceeded to uh, have a few beers there, and many of the people, uh, we had to call the wives to bring the people home. And uh, I particularly, and everyone stood for the uh, Saturday and Sunday, uh, trying to figure out uh, what happened and what our role was. And I uh, came Monday morning, I recognized the need that uh, this team had to uh, get back on track because we had a program and missions to run and that uh, we should assure ourselves that whatever will happen again in the future we will never again fail and I called the uh, my people uh, which was the flight control division into a conference room we had in there we had about 250 people. And I proceeded to talk when I was working out at Holloman Air Force Base. I had a uh, plot that was on my desk It showed a uh, World War II airplane, biplane, hung up at the tree, up in a, a tree. And it basically stated uh, unlike the sea, uh, flight is totally incapable of uh, incapacity, carelessness, or neglect. And it showed this picture up in the tree. Intolerant is the word, intolerant. Of, right. uh, carelessness, incapacity, or neglect. And I started off with a speech with that, and then I talked about the fact that whatever happened out in the launch pad, we don't know yet. But uh, we have to take a look at our role and our responsibilities, in it. somewhere, something, someone of us, this something that we should have picked up, and then I proceeded to talk about the problems that I recognized I had in my own area. Our procedures are not up to date. Our ground system wasn't fully tuned yet. Right on down the line, and they said that uh, somewhere, someone should have stood up and said, stop, halt.
1: We're not ready to go. I
2: ran the test the day before that accident, and uh, I knew we weren't ready. But no one said, halt, Don't go, go. But I said, from this day forward, mission control will be known by two words, tough, and competent. Tough meaning we'll never again shirk from our responsibilities because we are forever accountable for what we do or what we fail to do. A competent will never again stop learning. From now on, the teams and mission control will be perfect. Yeah. And uh, these became uh, two of the words. We wrote them on the blackboards in every office I had in my building, and we did not erase them until we had flown our final mission to the moon.
0: Wow. That's great. Were you around? I thought I saw a film. I don't remember what your role was with the Challenger. Were you there when the Challenger exploded? Yes, I
2: was, the, uh, I was the director of uh, space operations for NASA then. I stayed in NASA through 1994. Wow. So basically, I went through the Challenger accident, it, was, uh, it had a lot of similarities to it. The one thing that was not similar, however, was the recovery process. The, uh, when we had the Apollo 1 accident, uh, we had four great leaders who took charge. Uh, Sam Phillips, George Lowe, Deke Slayton, and Frank Borman. Uh, excuse me, Sam Phillips, and uh, George Lowe, Sam Phillips, Frank Borman, and uh, uh, I forget who the fourth one was. But basically, uh, they got the organization back on track, and what happened is that uh, they did not search for who was responsible as a single individual. They set out to find the problem and yeah. Basically, when we had the challenger accident, we spent too much of our time looking for who was responsible as to getting on with the program and fixing the problems. You know, one of the things that, um, as you talk about this uh, leadership uh, topic is there, is to uh, take a look upon the uh, various individuals uh, in your life. Who basically are contributing to your skills as an individual and as a leader. In uh, front of the uh, entrance to Space Center Houston, I have uh, 16 bricks uh, on the ground. You, you buy bricks to remember a certain individual. Right. And it uh, starts off uh, with my parents and my parents I uh, put the names down but I talk about the lesson learned from their faith and integrity. Uh, I lived in a boarding house during World War II so from the veterans I learned duty honor and duty honor and country. Uh, my grade school teacher was uh, marked by discipline. Uh, two high school teachers taught me fortitude and focus. Harry Carroll my boss uh, when I graduated from college taught me a passion primary flight instructor, confidence, Uh, jet instructor, uh, commitment. Uh, I've learned, I flew with the uh, 354th Colonel Gabreski, top living ace, Audacity. And by time in Korea, I learned of Brothers and Brotherhood, flight test that uh, Holloman taught me of accountability. Uh, Chris Kraft taught me of trust. So each one of these individuals was a key in baking and making this a guy called Gene Crans, and the skills that i possessed as a leader. And it's really, as I look back, I find out I owe so much to these people that I think uh, uh, I'm trying to teach my kids nowadays, as they go through their uh, role in life, to periodically say thank you to those who helped them along yeah. this journey.
0: Now that's well said. It's it's very poignant. I'm very touched that you you said that. You're right. And and when I think when you understand and you look back at your own development and how many people were so impactful for your own life, then you start to realize that you know you make an an, an impact as well. And especially when you got kids, you know, it's sometimes it's scary when you think about you know when the leadership side of it and. It's interesting a lot of times when I ask people who their leadership heroes i heroes are it almost invariably the parents come up almost always and that's frightening in some aspect because you think oh my gosh you know what are my kids going to think about me but it's true you think back you mentioned your 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 parents there early on but um you know we all have an obligation here we all have an obligation to um Become leaders in own right. I ask people, you know, do you think yourself as a leader? Some do, some don't. And I said, are you a parent? And most people are. Well, then we're obligated to learn about leadership. We're obligated, you know, to do the best that we can to learn what it means to be a better leader.
2: Well, it, it's my belief that leaders learn from leaders but are not made by leaders. Leaders make themselves. Yeah. And to a great extent, I, uh, I have probably uh, uh, a more intensive leadership library here at home than uh, most uh, libraries have. And most of that uh, uh, is basically military leadership. Uh, when I grew up during uh, World War II, uh, Korea, uh, I've studied Vietnam, I've studied the uh, war over in the Middle East and uh, basically I look at the patents, but I can also go back into the, uh, the lees and the grants. It's, it's, to a great extent, uh, you learn from other leaders, and a lot of this can be acquired just by reading of them and yep. taking a look at the decisions they had to make, the challenges they faced. Yep. Uh, I've become a fan of the Civil War just because I found out that uh, those people had uh, many of the same challenges not only technically, but politically, yep. learning to cope with the environment that they were put in. Yep. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, there's many ways to learn. You learn from the people around you, you learn by the environment, and you learn by basically the experiences that you allow yourself to uh, seek out, find, and, and and go for. That's why I like Terry Carroll. Think of what I would have missed if I hadn't volunteered to do all of those things.
0: That's beautiful. I love that. Yeah. You know, I I contend that leadership is so easy to understand, it's a little more difficult to implement because of the courage involved. But it, the, the good news is courage is a choice. And um yeah. if you if you look at it that way then you know, you choose to be courageous, then anybody can be a leader. In fact we're all obligated to be it. Well guys Gene, this has been a true privilege and a true honor i can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule um, you've, I've been a fan and you are definitely a leadership hero of mine, as to many others out there. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us and be honest and and, and vulnerable about uh, your leadership trials and tribulations. Uh, where can people find you? I know you still do speaking Is there anything you want to is there a way that people can find you if they want to have you come speak at their their event or organization
2: Well I have an agent i uh... Corporately, I uh, speak for, uh, uh, my agent is uh, Jim Kepler at Kepler Speakers.
0: Kepler Speakers, okay. I'll put a link and in there.
2: My... that's one word, keplerspeakers.com, and they actually have samples from the various speeches, and they have a pretty good uh, repertoire of uh, people uh, that Kepler works with. I do uh, many sessions uh, with Jim Lowell. I've done sessions with Fred Hayes, various astronauts. Uh, but it's a uh, it's interesting business to uh, get into. I've been doing a lot of aviation and airshow show related. I just finished one with the uh, Soaring Club of Houston, and I've got an invitation to uh, uh, get a, uh, my first uh, uh, glider flight. I uh, go down to Kingsville, speak to the Marines down there, and I, I went aboard the Carrier Eisenhower for their landing quals. Wow. So uh, I get uh, plenty of opportunities to uh, to uh, get out and see what the business is about nowadays.
0: Well, gosh, like I said, you're a leadership hero. Thanks for giving us a dose today. And uh, stay on the line here after we cut off the recording. I want to talk to you just a little bit more here. So, okay, great. All right, Gene.
1: Thanks a lot. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership eBook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.